Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Every year, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists gets together to consider all the ways we human beings are setting ourselves up for destruction via nuclear weapons, climate change, cyber warfare, and the assault on truth and science. Every year, to reflect their findings, they set the metaphorical doomsday clock. The closer we are to midnight, the closer we are to total annihilation. Last year, it was set the closest it's ever been to midnight, 100 seconds away. And that was before the pandemic. Governments have allocated trillions of dollars to deal with COVID. So imagine what trillions of dollars could do to reverse the worst effects of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. But hey, being a part of that team isn't all doom and gloom. I don't think you could do this unless you were an optimist. Yeah, we created a lot of this mess. We should be able to get ourselves out of it. I'm Kyone Wolf. Meet two members of the Bulletin and find out what time it is next on Audacious, right after the news. Bombs away. Five, four, three, three, two, thirty-three. One, one, zero. Well, there it is. The first public demonstration and the biggest continental atomic detonation in the history of the world. That, of course, was the shock wave. And looking into the cloud, you see the orange, the brown, the dirty black, and the fringed white. Beautiful, tremendous, and angry spectacle on this waste and barren desert. Just looking away from the beautiful mushroom that's turning into that fabulous white now, and down to that ugly gray all across the floor of this valley, you can't help but realize that you could put right inside this proving ground from where we are, the entire island of Manhattan, New York City. And if you look at that dirty, ugly, gray base, you see what that particular weapon can do. And certainly, as we've been told here many times during the past few days by Mr. Gordon Dean, the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, General Joseph Mills, who was in charge of the airdrop today, the enemy certainly has similar weapons. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and that was KTLA's Fred Henry reporting from Nevada on April 22, 1952, and that atomic bomb weighed 33 kilotons, and its flash was 50 times brighter than the sun. Now, almost 70 years later, there are just over 13,000 nuclear warheads in the world. But hey, that's down from about 70,000 in the mid-'80s, Nuclear war is a terrifying prospect, no matter what side of the bomb you're on, but it's just one of the many ways we humans may successfully annihilate ourselves. Sharon Squassoni is a research professor at the Elliott School of International Affairs 
at George Washington University. And Herb Lynn is a senior research scholar and Hank J. Holland Research Fellow in Cyber Policy and Security at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Together, they're members of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, a nonprofit organization led by a group of scientists who, among other things, are the keepers of the Doomsday Clock. The Doomsday Clock is a metaphor. It moves closer to midnight, depending on how close we are to human-made global catastrophe through climate change, nuclear weapons, or even mm, pandemics, fueled by misinformation and failed leadership. You know, the typical folly of humankind. When the hands of the doomsday clock reach midnight, well, you probably won't know because you'll be dead. In 1947, when they first debuted the clock, it was seven minutes to midnight. The furthest away it's ever been is 17 minutes to midnight. That was back when the U.S. and the Soviet Union agreed to cut their nuclear weapons arsenals back in 1991. Last January, the bulletin set the clock at 100 seconds to midnight. And that was before the COVID-19 pandemic shook the whole world up. I asked Sharon to talk about what it was about this past year that informed their decision for this year's time on the doomsday clock. This growing sense of a corrupted information ecosphere, which makes it much harder for science and rational thought to take hold. I mean, there were active efforts by governments and leaders to undermine uh, information. I mean, for us, the last year, obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic, I think, led many people to question, how do we define security? You know, when we were talking a little bit about existential threats, it's not so much that there will be no humans left, although obviously a massive nuclear exchange would kill off uh, many, many people. But is this the kind of society and civilization that we want to live in? And when the pandemic started to spread its tentacles across the globe, we were really left with the thought of, all right, this kind of life that we're all living now is, you know, is that how we envisioned our society? I mean, I think there are a lot of efforts now being expended to keep all the things that we hold dear going, right? Culture, discourse, democracy. We're expending a lot of effort on keeping that going. You know, in the nuclear, my my background is uh, nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. In the past year, it's not so much that things got a lot worse, but they certainly didn't get better. And we saw some slipping of, um, you know, for example, we were not up until recently able to, you know, get the U.S. government to extend the New START Treaty, which is the only strategic nuclear arms control agreement we have with the Russians right now. Iran was, was continuing to slip in its compliance with the Iran nuclear deal. North Korea is still off on the, you know, margins doing what it's doing. So, um, I guess that's how I would, I would explain what was happening in the in the international security realm. Well, I feel like the tension is killing me. Why don't you reveal the time that the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists have decided it is on the doomsday clock for 2021? It's the same as it was last year, which is 100 seconds. It's now set at 100 seconds to midnight. 
And the reason that there's no change is that certainly, I mean, as Sharon noted, there were a lot of bad things that happened in the last year. So she talked about the international security environment. Very little has been accomplished in the climate change uh, to fight climate change. And of course, we've seen COVID, uh, which has been a, you know, a very interesting development that's affected the entire world. In fact, we describe uh, the COVID pandemic as a wake-up call. It's not a kind of a dress rehearsal for the big one. And we flunked the test entirely. In 2020, uh, when we first set the clock at 100 seconds, we warned that destruction and attack, continuing attacks on institutions meant to provide social stability would be dangerous. And now in 2021, we see that those attacks have had real consequences. So you might say, well, in that light, why didn't you move the clock forward? Okay, and that's a fair question. And I think that the answer to that is that we see signs of hope, too, on a large scale. We have an administration, for example, that is now committed to actually following what the science says, or at least listening to it. We have indications that this administration understands at least better than the previous administration, the value of, of uh, engagement with uh, other nations, of cooperation, and so on. So a, a whole variety of things uh, that have appeared, that appear promising. Um, now, nothing has happened yet. And so we don't know. And, you know we, we hope that you know, every year we meet, wishing and hoping that we could have a good argument for moving the clock back, away, farther away from it. Every year we do that. Every year, I mean, that we live to see that, and you know, we hope that the promising things that we've seen right now are realized. And that's why, on balance, we didn't move the clock. You know, it's it's kind of funny, Herb. Sometimes I wonder if people think that we're a bunch of doom and gloom folks sitting around the table, thinking, you know, tearing our hair out. Ah, oh, this is happening. That's happening. But in fact. I don't think you could do this unless you were an optimist because you couldn't spend decades contemplating, all right, what are the worst threats that uh, humankind has come up with to torture itself? Uh, fundamentally, I think we as a group subscribe to the notion that, yeah, we created a lot of this mess. We should be able to get ourselves out of it. Recognizing, of course, that it is much easier to get into a mess than it is to get out. Yes. <laughs> part of me when I saw that the time would remain unchanged at 100 seconds to midnight, part of me was like, phew, <laughs> unchanged. And at the same time, I'm like, damn it. <laughs> so I wonder what could we, what are some major things we could have accomplished in 2020 to have brought it a minute further or more away from midnight? What in an alternate universe could we have done? We have a, a conversation every year about, you know, climate change, right? Because in theory, you know, until we get to zero carbon dioxide, you know, zero greenhouse gas emissions, we're just inevitably ticking closer and closer, right? So, you know, how do we deal with that? Um, you know, this past year, because of the pandemic, uh, emissions were down, you know, almost 17%. They started to climb back up. But again, you know, when you look at that and you're like, well, do you want the world to stop uh, simply so that, you know, we can reduce our carbon emissions? No, there's got to be a more sophisticated response than that. However, 
you know, on his first day in office, Joe Biden comes in and says, yeah, we're, we're getting back into the Paris Agreement. So, you know, it's funny, as a political scientist, I stand back and I say, yeah, that's what we need. You know, we need leadership. Actually, words do matter. And these aspirational steps are really important. A hard scientist might say, well, okay, so getting back into the Paris Climate Accord doesn't change the emissions at all. <laughs> so how can you really move the clock back or back and forth on that? And the answer is, well, we haven't moved it on account of climate change. But there are there are very specific steps I think you can take. And we did outline them in our statement. You know, I can speak to some of the ones on more on arms control. You know, you can get back into treaties, you can sit down and, and have real discussions with the Russians, not the kind of arm's length, unrealistic demands that we've made. Right. What we've been doing is we've been pointing fingers at the Russians and saying, our approach to arms control negotiations, uh, and in fact, all the other international negotiation has been, other nations, here's our position. Cooperation means you agree with us. So you asked one of the, you asked what could have been done to make the clock move backwards, okay, move farther away from India. Uh, here, here, here is something, we, we didn't put this in the, in, in the clock statement, but here's an example of the sort of thing. That, the, the world has allocated, the governments have allocated trillions of dollars, with a T, trillions of dollars to deal with COVID, okay? So that money is available for planetary emergencies, okay? Imagine what trillions of dollars could do to reverse the, the worst effects of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And we didn't do that. I mean, you asked, well, you know, one of the things that you asked was, you know, what could be done? And, you know, we could have done that. The fact that we did it for COVID is proof that it's possible. I mean, it's not clear that, you know, you, you, you couldn't have done it. You may not have been able to do it twice. Once for COVID and once for greenhouse gas. I mean, I, I'm not saying. But the point is, the, but the previous year, we could have done it. I feel like this pandemic, I wish I remember where I read this. There was somebody who was saying that this pandemic is revealing in the sense that our leaders and the people in charge of all these institutions who are saying, no, we're going to be fine and we got this. It's like when the pool is drained you see who's been swimming this whole time without any trunks on. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. This was the dress rehearsal that we failed. People came to it undressed. In fact, they had clothes on at the beginning and they took them off. The first ever test of an atomic bomb happened in New Mexico in 1945. J. Robert Oppenheimer was the director of the Trinity Test Site Laboratory. He was the theoretical physicist known as the father of the atomic bomb after his leadership in the Manhattan Project, which was the effort by the United States to develop the world's first atomic weapons during World War II. Twenty years after that Trinity test, Oppenheimer appeared on NBC to talk about what it felt like for him to witness it. He knew the world would not be the same few people laughed, few people cried, most people were silent. I remembered the line from the end 
Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. When we get back. You know, if you had another four years of climate change denial, that piles up. Those impacts are are long-lasting. How much would the hypothetical re-election of Donald Trump have affected the time on the doomsday clock? I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking with two members of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Every year they set the doomsday clock, a metaphorical clock that looks at climate change, cyber warfare, and nuclear threats to evaluate how close we are to total self-extinction. Every January they announce the time, and this year they've kept the clock set at last year's time, 100 seconds to midnight. Sharon Squassoni is from George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs, and Herb Lynn is a senior research scholar and Hank J. Holland Research Fellow in Cyber Policy and Security at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. I wanted to know, in another universe, if Donald Trump had been re-elected president, how would that have impacted the doomsday clock? That's a tough one. Uh, you know, we make it a point not... <laughs> not to choose sides, not to make a decision based on person X was reelected or not. Um, I'm not sure that the clock would have moved closer to midnight if Trump had been reelected. It's pretty darn close as it is. However, if there had been evidence of conspiracy or somehow that, uh, you know, an undermining of democracy in that re-election, I think that could have made a difference. Am I wrong? Herb? Well, we had a, so you should know, our initial discussions on setting the clock were back in November. And so, you know, there was a chance, uh, but it was after, it was after the election. And so it was at that point, we believed that there was some ambiguity on it, but, you know, we were reasonably certain that, that, that Biden had, had won the election. Imagine a hypo, a, something that I think, at least I have a hard time imagining. The election comes along and, and Trump uh, wins it by a speaker. And he says, you know, boy, that was really close. I didn't realize that the country was so divided. I could have really screwed it up. 
and you know I'm going to do a whole bunch of other things to to make the world a lot better. And then said some of the things that Biden has been saying about rejoining Paris. I, I see now that I was wrong about that, and so on. We're going to rejoin. I mean, that, you know, sure. I mean, that that could have been a good thing, right? No, I'm not. I'm not saying that, you know. I'm not saying that I believe that that could have happened. But you know, there's no law of physics that would have prevented it. <laughs> it's hard to answer these kinds of hypotheticals because it depends on what happens. Well, it is revealing about the power of one position, the power of an office. And and I know that this is not, you know, the last four years, the, the choices that he and his administration and the people who enable him have made, it's not going to undo, you know, a whole, you know, many decades and centuries worth of climate change and all these other policies that have piled onto each other. But it, I'm curious about that sense of how much power does the presidential office of the United States have in affecting the global health of our people? Well, I mean, I think the answer of the, over the last four years has shown is that if you systematically attack and denigrate and dismantle the institutions that are meant to provide for societal emergencies, which is what government is supposed to do, and an emergency comes along, you're not in very good shape. And all you have to do is look at the coronavirus statistics in the United States to see that. But there's something more that I think Americans tend to forget. And that is the United States was a key architect of the post-World War II system, whatever you want to call that, right? And so, you know, by the United States pulling out of the World Health Organization, pulling out of, you know, different organizations, the United States pays for about a quarter of the budget of all of the UN organizations, right? Some of them, we don't like what they do, but most of them, we do like what they do. And so, uh, you know, when the U.S. withdraws its support, whether it's just financial or rhetorical, political, whatever, it has reverberations around the world. And, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of countries and politicians out there who are very pleased that they now have a United States government that is really happy to work with other countries and, you know, supports the multilateral institutions. But, you know, there's been some damage done, no doubt. There's certainly been some damage. Now, if you're looking at climate change and another, you know, if you had another four years of climate change denial and you're not spending money in the right ways, for example, the stimulus or rebuilding, if you're not going to spend that on green projects, but, you know, more on fossil fuels, that piles up. Those impacts are are long-lasting. I think about humanity a lot like the frog in boiling water, you know? <laughs> and I wonder what you think about our standards of living, maybe lowering or adapting in a way that's not really useful. I mean, we, we rely on you every year, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, to give us some perspective, Right. But I mean, like nuclear weapons aren't in the headlines like they were, for example, during the Cold War. So I wonder what you think about these evolving standards. Are the standards that we're maintaining for ourselves and what a healthy planet and a healthy human animal looks like, do you think they're changing in a way that is enabling our downfall, enabling us getting closer to midnight? Are we getting used to a bad situation in such a way that we no longer feel any motivation to change it just because we've gotten used to it. 
And the fact that we've gotten used to it means that we're not particularly motivated to take any action because there's nothing new, there's nothing novel in the, in, in the situation, and therefore things are going to get worse. Are, are we in danger of that? Yes. <laughs> yes, that is uh, what has happened. People have very short-term memories. I mean, all you have to do is look at the, the shift in, in, in sentiment in certain aspects of the Republican Party uh, from the reactions on January 7th, day after the siege, to now about what the consequences of the siege uh, were. They forget that they were under fire. And you know, people, people have, a, have, have very short memories. And one, of the th- one of the values of science is that you, you start, you believe in data. And data taken two years ago should still have some relevance to data taken now. You look at trends. People find it very hard to do that. So, yes, I, 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 I spent a lot of time trying to get my students to understand. I mean, 20-year-old students, I mean, they, they don't remember 9-11. <laughs> they don't remember so many things. Uh, and, and, you know, our job as educators uh, is to try to get them to have some historical perspective. But that's really hard. Sharon? Yeah, I would agree. Uh, you know, the example I would give uh, would be, you know, the racial turmoil we lived through this past summer. You know, I think a lot of people had become used to these terrible, terrible statistics about Black people in America getting killed by cops. It was just another story, another story. And you know, we really are in the boiling water. And I think if we really want to rescue our democracy, we're going to have to create a political system that is much more fair, much more just. On the international stage, you know, when it comes to nuclear weapons, absolutely. Uh, you know, we now have a nuclear weapons ban treaty that just entered into force earlier in January. And you know, most of the conventional wisdom um, in the states with nuclear weapons is that, oh, you know, we've lived with nuclear weapons for 75 years. You know, we're going to continue to live with them for another 75. And I really think it's time for us to stand back and say, no, 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 let's <laughs> let's take a fresh look at this. Really, what are the risks? It doesn't honestly matter whose hands these weapons are in. They pose very specific risks. And if anything, uh, you know, if we accomplish anything with this doomsday clock, it would be, I would hope that that's what it would be to kind of force people to say, okay, you know, let me take my own look at this. Let me step back and kind of question the conventional wisdom. So in in a way, it's sort of like the the guy who plays record roulette, right? There's a one in six chance that you'll you'll get shot um, and that, that you'll die. And I'm imagining Russian roulette where you just spin the cylinder every time. Right? Now, if you don't spin the cylinder, then you know that it's going to get worse and worse. Okay, but if you spin the cylinder every if you spin the cylinder every time, the one in six chance. And you know you go through three or four. You know you go through three times and nothing bad has happened. Say, so, oh well, okay, I, it's okay. I, I I survived that. I can survive it the next time. Okay, you know that's clearly not the right way to live your life. But people don't <laughs> understand that. So maybe it's more like a frog in boiling water playing Russian roulette with itself. Yes. (laughs) We're talking uh, shortly after 
the time was revealed to the world. And so I'm sure a lot of you are doing a lot of press. You know, the the excitement maybe wears off as the year goes on. And I wonder, what are people not asking you? I wish they'd ask, you know, is this fixable? Is this, you know, like what are, I mean, we do give a set of, you know, steps that we think if taken would turn the hands back. You know, I wish they'd say, okay, well, you know, like what are, what are the five things you could do tomorrow that would make a difference? Uh, we, we did get one question like that, which was um, at, at our press conference, which was more geared towards, you know, what can I personally do? And that's always a stumper, right? Because it's like, okay, you can recycle. You can shut the lights off in your house to reduce your electricity consumption. But, you know, there aren't a lot of good... Uh, uh, climate change folks, of course, know that, you know, like, yeah, you do individual actions, but it's really things happening at a much higher level. On the nuclear side of it, it's pretty hard. You know, it's uh, it's a long term enterprise. If you want to get politically active and, you know, stalk your local congressman or senator, you have to be pretty darn determined because those people have a lot of other priorities, especially now. Right. With with COVID-19 gripping the world. I want to know, what does the world look like when the hand on the doomsday clock falls off? Like when the world is so safe and secure and healthy and strong that contemplating its demise is not a priority for anybody. Like when the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists is disbanded and the clock is totally irrelevant, what does that world look like? Butterflies and unicorns and I don't cookies, cupcakes, <laughs> kittens, <laughs> cookies that don't make you fat. <laughs> there is a, uh, I think, a genuinely serious answer to that question here. It's possible to imagine a world without nuclear weapons. You know, one one can imagine the world that. was in that state at some point. Yeah, and it's possible to imagine a world where the greenhouse gas emissions problem has been more or less solved. It's not possible to imagine a world in which the threat of pandemic is eliminated. No, nobody believes in that world. There, there is not a world in which people will not be picking up new technologies and science that have a possible potential bad impact on the world. Uh, that's always going to happen. Science has always had this dual edge character. And so there will always be a role for something, for some monitoring activity or something like that, that says, where are we with respect to being able to combat new pandemics or to suppress their outbreak? to deal with them once they get out into the world, to deal with the new vaccines that will already be, you know, that will suddenly be needed, to make sure that the PPE that people need and have, you know, will be available and so on and so forth. There will always be a need to keep an eye, a careful eye on research that could be misused to the detriment of humanity, which means there's always gonna be a, a role for people who think the worst. So I think that that, that will, you know, you, as I say, you can imagine a world in which the nuclear war question is solved. You can imagine a world in which the climate change issue 
it, it sort of solves it. That's a no more greenhouse gas emissions and so on. But those other things, I mean, those are always going to be there. When it comes to nuclear weapons, many of us think about World War II and how in 1945, President Truman ordered the dropping of two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan. On August 6th, the B-29 bomber Enola Gay dropped an atomic bomb referred to as Little Boy on the city of Hiroshima. It was 8.15 on a Monday morning. Most folks were at work and most students were in school, like Satsuko Thurlow. She was in eighth grade, just 13 years old and one mile away from ground zero. As she grew up, she spoke out about her experience in Hiroshima and spoke out against the existence of nuclear weapons. Here she is accepting a Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. She's talking about what she experienced that morning after she saw the bluish-white flash of the atomic bomb. I remember having the sensation of floating in the air. When I regained the consciousness in the total darkness and silence, I found myself pinned under the collapsed building. I knew I was faced with death. I began hearing faint voices of my classmates around me. Mother, help me. God, help me. Then all of a sudden, somebody shook my left shoulder from behind. The man saying, don't give up, keep pushing, keep kicking. You see the sun ray coming through that opening. Crawl toward it as quickly as possible. As I crawled out, the rubble was on fire. Most of my classmates in the same building were burnt to death alive. I saw all around me utter, unrecognizable, unimaginable devastation. Procession of ghostly figures shuffled by. Grotesquely wounded people, they were bleeding, burned, blackened, and swollen. Parts of their bodies were missing Flesh and skin hung from their bones. Some with their own eyeballs hanging in their hands. Some with their bellies burst open. Their intestines hanging out. The foul stench of burnt human flesh filled the air. Thus, with one bomb, my beloved city was obliterated. 
Most of its residents were civilians who were incinerated, vaporized, carbonized, among them members of my own family and 351 schoolmates of mine. In the weeks, months, and the years that followed, many thousand more, more would die, often in random and mysterious ways from the delayed effects of radiation. Still to this day, radiation is killing survivors. Whenever I remember Hiroshima, the first image that comes to my mind is my four-year-old nephew, Eiji. His little body transformed into an unrecognizable melted chunk of flesh. He kept begging for water in a faint voice until his death released him from agony. To me, he came to represent all the innocent children of the world, threatened as they are at this very moment by nuclear weapons. Every second of every day, nuclear weapon endanger everyone we love and everything we hold dear. We must not tolerate this insanity any longer. That's Setsuko Thurlow speaking in 2017 as she accepted a Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. It's estimated that the explosion in Hiroshima and the aftermath of radiation killed between 70 and 135,000 people. The atomic bomb that the U.S. dropped on Nagasaki three days later killed between 60 and 80,000 people. When we get back, what are the experts in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists hopeful about? I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay tuned. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. Today, reflections on the end of the world from Sharon Squassoni and Herb Lynn. They're members of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, who every year gather to consider the state of nuclear weapons, climate change, corruption, and disinformation to gauge how close we are to our impending doom. The device that they use to advertise their consensus is the metaphorical doomsday clock. Midnight means total annihilation. Last year, the clock was set to 100 seconds to midnight. This year, the hands of that big old clock stayed Which is nice, I guess, especially considering the pandemic came between those two announcements. But 
It's also scary. We've never been so close to midnight. It's not all doomsday and gloom, though. I asked them about how they balance knowing about all the terrible things happening on the planet Earth with also knowing how fully capable we are of solving it. I think... <laughs> you know, I think you've made me speechless here. I do believe in the power of information and... You know, when it comes to nuclear weapons, so many things are kept very, very secret, right? For a lot of reasons. I so I feel like the power of informing people, you know, it's almost like crowdsourcing, right? You get enough people interested in the topic with good information, uh, enough to challenge that conventional wisdom that they can come up with an alternative path. If you don't have that, things will continue in the status quo. And that status quo is defended by big defense industry interests, right? There, there's a lot of money in defense. There's a lot of money in, you know, national security and, and in nuclear weapons. It sounds a little bit like to me that you're using a lot of the work you've done in your whole career and your work with the bulletin to cope with knowing that there's this tension, you know, like right now I'm, I'm standing by and I'm trying to report on it via you, but to me, it's just pure madness. And I wonder if maybe the work you're doing with the bulletin and being outspoken about the real state of things is maybe helping alleviate some of that tension or does it make it worse? I don't think it makes it worse. I mean, I am, uh, you know, the, <laughs> I'll tell your listeners a secret. You know, my, my first experience was at, with a bulletin was I was a college undergraduate doing some research in the stacks of the library, you know, right when we used to have libraries, physical libraries. And uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was uh, procrastinating. I was supposed to be doing some economic research and I, on the shelf right next to what I was looking at was the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. And I was blown away by the fact that these scientists for whom, you know, they're especially atomic scientists, right? They had just done some incredibly path-breaking uh, scientific research and they were actually spending their time trying to educate the public and politicians about the dangers of these things. I also happened to be dating a scientist at the time. So I knew how very, very jealous they are of their time. You know, any time that's spent outside of science seemed to be, you know, time that was wasted. It really impressed me that they would step outside the boundaries of their comfort zone, right? To talk about the, you know, the political and social ramifications of this. I, you know, when I doom scroll, it's mostly about, you know, people who fall uh, off cliffs when they hike. You know, I love to hike. I love to mountain bike. I always think, yeah, you know, I could probably kill myself on any given day. Um, but instead, uh, you know, that could happen at any time. But I feel like, I hope that, uh, you know, I'm actually making a difference by 
alerting everyone to these dangers. These are not just for scientists, right? Every person on this planet is affected by these issues and, you know, they should all have a hand in it. My first real serious introduction to this was through my doctoral thesis advisor, who was the fellow who assembled the first nuclear weapon that ever was detonated. I heard a lot about him, uh, from him, about his stories about the Manhattan Project. Uh, he was in the first wave of Americans to go over there immediately after the bombings and, and he toured uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki weeks after the, the blast. So he, I don't think he was a member of the, the founding board of the adult and atomic science, but he was certainly one of the, the initial authors in it, describing what it would be like to have a nuclear weapon going off. I think he, he testified to Congress about what a nuclear weapon going off in New York would be or something like that. And this was in 19, you know, the 1940s. I, I think that he felt he and uh, the whole a whole bunch of physicists felt that they had a responsibility to tell the world about this thing that they had created. A nuclear weapon is really an incredible thing. I mean, you're 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 really tickling a part of the universe that most people don't have any way of accessing. There's just no way of understanding. The, the remarkable energies that are liberated when you lay around with atomic nuclei. It's more than anything that, that's, in the, that's in the realm of human experience. And so we felt that physicists of all people have a, have a responsibility to do that. And, and I think that he passed that on to me. But, you know, I, you, you, you made a comment uh, a moment ago, which I think maybe deeper than you think, but certainly my involvement with the bulletin and my speaking out about the stuff and the research that I do and, and, and interviews that I give and, and the students that I, uh, you know, that I do reading projects with and so on, they are all, all of it is both to inform them. Yes, that's true. And to inform the world, that's true. I know inform policy because, oh, that's true. Yes. But is there a therapeutic element to it for me? I think I have to say the answer is yes. That it says, I'm not totally helpless. I can do something. I can't make decisions that I think the president of the United States should be making. I'd make a terrible president for a variety of reasons. Um, but it's what I can do. And, and you know, that, that, that makes me feel that my life has some value in the context of this year's time 100 seconds to midnight unchanged from last year but it's still never been closer how hopeful are you that when we talk again next year we'll be further away from midnight i'm very cautiously optimistic that we will be better off and of course, it's a re it, it's a relative it, it's a relative statement. We certainly would have been better off would, would be better off if it had gone the other the election had gone the other way. So, um, I think that, that the this administration has actually done some things already with executive orders and so on to move the clock in in, in the right direction. Um, 
I think that if none of the bad things that we described had happened, uh, and only the good things that we had described happened, we would have moved the clock farther away from it. So it's, there is hope. Sharon? I am unreservedly optimistic. <laughs> and that is because a bunch of bad things could happen. Absolutely. North Korea could ratchet things up. Iran could say, forget it. We're just not going to play ball on the nuclear deal. But we have, I think, a team of very experienced people in government who seem to want to make a change. Uh, The thing that I was concerned about the Biden administration was that it would be kind of business as usual, but I don't think that's the case. And I think that the actions so far that uh, Mr. Biden has taken show that he does want to mix things up a bit. You know, climate is a big priority you know, nuclear issues may take a little bit of a backseat because we are suffering so much under the pandemic and economics. But I'm, I feel pretty, pretty confident that if we have this conversation next year, we're going to be a little happier. Oh, we will find out. Sharon Squassoni and Herb Lynn, members of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists and their doomsday clock, which is set to 100 seconds to midnight. Thanks for talking with me. Thank you. Thank you. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. To subscribe and listen back to shows about things like how the way we train our dogs says a lot about ourselves, the philosophy of self-determination within the context of blindness, what it's like to not be capable of feeling any physical pain, and relationship advice from people who've been married for over 50 years, visit ctpublic.org slash audacious. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kyone Wolf. And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening.